15 years ago after my mother died and while my father was still recovering at Timbercrest from the injuries he sustained in the car accident, their house over on Wild Cherry Lane stood empty for a number of months. Occasionally my siblings stayed there when they visited here in town, but mostly it was empty. During that time, I checked on it almost every day, sometimes just to pick up the mail, other times I might take something inside or pick up something for my father. Every once in a while, I just went in and sat a while. I did that going in and sitting a while more in the early months than I did later on. At first, I think I was trying to catch something of my mother's lingering presence. Even when I caught a hint of it, I could never hold on to it. Even when I would sit in her recliner, which I did from time to time. But going in and out of that house as the months went by, I did discover something, or I should say I was reminded of something, and it was this. I felt at home there. And it was strange because I knew it wasn't the house itself that made me feel at home. My mom and dad only bought that house a couple of years before the accident, and I'd never lived there. And really, on the whole, I hadn't spent a whole lot of time there. And I also knew that it wasn't that I felt home, at home there because of what objects were in the house, although there were plenty of things that felt familiar to me, much of the same furniture, the particular pictures, my mother's collectibles, even children's books on the bookshelves, those things felt familiar to me, but those things weren't what, me, what made me feel at home there. No, it wasn't the particular house and it wasn't what was in the house. It was whose house it was. That is to say, it wasn't the bricks and mortar, it wasn't the furniture and decorations, it was the association. And I say that because what I eventually realized in those months after my mother's death and before my father's return to the house was that I felt at home there because I've always felt at home in my parents' house. Whether that one or the one before that or the one before that or the one before that. It was never the house itself. It was them. And what was it exactly that made me feel that way? It really is simple, I think. It's that I had always felt that they delighted in having me there. I always felt welcome. When my parents moved here to North Manchester a couple of years after we moved here, they gave me a key to their house. And they told me to use the key rather than ringing the doorbell. Now, there was a key because they moved from someplace other than North Manchester. All of you are trying to imagine having a key to your front door. They also had a key to my house, but they generally called before they came over, or if they didn't, they knocked on the door. But when I went to their house, I walked right in. 
And without fail, when I came into the house, they would stop whatever they were doing or working on or watching and look up, saying with a smile, hey, you're here. It's good to see you. Welcome. I find myself doing the same thing now with my own grown children. Whenever they come into my house, expected or unexpected, I greet them. Hey, it's good to see you. What's going on? How are you? And I don't do it just because it's something I feel I should do or because it's a reflex. I do it for the same reason I suspect my parents did it. I am always genuinely delighted to see them. In the text for this morning, there are only three verses, and yet the weightiness of those verses is extremely significant in terms of the overall message of the gospel. These verses come at the tail end of a series of stories in which Jesus is healing, and then he sends the disciples out to do the same, and he warns them of persecution, and he encourages them to be fearlessly transparent. And then before we get to the three verses for today, there's one more section that we didn't look at already because it's not highlighted in this cycle of the lectionary, but there are verses about loyalty and sacrifice, about taking up the cross and losing or finding one's life. It's intense. And then after all that, there come these verses calling out for welcome. And it's interesting, I think, that after all that other stuff that Jesus talks in these couple of verses about welcome, because everything else that comes before this part of the text suggests that welcome won't be coming. That is, the way the world responds to us is mostly not like parents embracing their children. The scriptures immediately before these verses suggest that the world may not open its arms to those who walk in the way of Jesus. Welcome is, in fact, a rare thing, especially if you do not conform to this world. I admit that I tend to assume that a welcoming spirit and an open embrace is not a rare thing, And I suppose I tend to think that it's not rare because of the way I was raised. And I'm assuming the way many of you were raised as well. Not only was I acknowledged whenever I came in, not only was I given the key to the front door of my parents' home long after I had moved out, but going back to earlier times, I recall that we had people coming into the home of my growing up years all the time. When I was a small child and we lived in Germany, we frequently had people camping in our home. Often, I didn't even know who these people were. I think half of them were friends of friends of friends from my mother's hometown, but they were all welcome. So I think of an open-door policy as normal, but only very slowly have I come to realize that it is for many people not the case. Most people are afraid to open their doors because to do so means to open a piece of your life. And if you welcome someone into your life, you run the risk of being changed by their presence. 
And you can't ever know up front if that change will hurt you or help you, heal you or wound you. To welcome the disciples as they went around healing the sick and casting out demons and raising the dead would have been risky. It's one thing to welcome the humble traveler. It's another thing to throw open the door to the rabble-rousers. So Jesus offers what looks like an incentive. Welcome a prophet, get a prophet's reward. Welcome a holy person, get a holy person's reward. Welcome a little one or someone at the bottom rung of the ladder, and well, you won't lose your reward anyway. Quite a deal, right? Except what exactly is a prophet's reward? What is the reward of holiness? And what do you get for sharing a cup of cold water? The reward of the prophets in the Bible was often pain and ridicule. Holy people get tested. Sharing a cup of cold water usually means that you have in some way put yourself out. So, full disclosure, welcoming Jesus is about welcoming those who walk in Jesus' way, but welcoming those who walk in Jesus' way is not going to be easy or settled. It's not like giving your children the key to the front door and an open invitation to come in anytime. Welcome a prophet and you will become one who harbors prophets, a sympathizer of prophets, an endorser of their message. And much of the world doesn't smile on such things. Is that a surprise to you? Maybe deep in our hearts, even as we yearn to be fully received, fully welcomed, we know just as well that hospitality of the generous and unconditional and sometimes unpopular sort that Jesus is talking about, we know that such welcome will always have its price. Welcome and vulnerability go hand in hand. But there's good news embedded in all of this as well. Because sacrifice and blessing are not that far from each other. Since we are always living into our lives over and over, we are becoming an expression of the convictions we hold and the actions we take. If you welcome, you are becoming welcoming. You are choosing the shape of yourself as you live each step of your life. And the shape of welcome is the true shape of those who seek to share the gospel. And so maybe the reward Jesus has in mind is simply this, that as you recognize the face of Jesus in others, Jesus will recognize you. As you reach out to others, Jesus reaches out to you. And that will be enough. And it may be even everything you need. Kathleen Norris in her book, Amazing Grace, a vocabulary of faith, talks about hospitality and welcome in terms of the Benedictine monks with whom she is so familiar. She writes, St. Benedict says, a monastery is never without guests. 
and what Benedict says might be seen as a way to define a monastery if it regularly exercises hospitality so as to attract guests, it is a monastery. If it doesn't, it is not. But I have been long aware that hospitality is a burden for the Benedictines, she continues, especially in small communities in which people often have three or four official jobs. Finding ways to offer hospitality to the many people who want to visit is exceptionally difficult. It is not uncommon for communities of only a dozen monks or nuns to house 50 or more retreatants every weekend. Given this fact, I try to be aware that being a guest in a monastery brings with it certain burdens, primarily being willing to accept the pure grace of being welcomed without exceptions, welcomed as I am because of Christ. When I first visited a monastery back in 1983, she says, I was a rank beginner, not entirely sure what an abbey was, and I recall dragging both chatter and a bulging briefcase into the choir with me, not knowing what the liturgy of hours was all about. But I also liked what I found there and drank so deeply of monastic hospitality that when I went back home, I began dreaming about the place. My unconscious mind knew, long before I did, that I had received an invitation. I stood before an open door and was welcomed inside. Norris notes that with the exception of some what she calls spit and polish novices, most monks have come to a place where they are comfortable with the needs and distractions that outsiders bring into their midst. But, she continues, like most serious and rewarding human endeavors, Benedictine hospitality is a process, and it takes time for people to figure out how to best to incarnate it, that is, how best to embody it. As with so many other aspects of monastic formation, it is the elderly who provide the models. Not long ago, she writes, I heard a novice speak of a nun with Alzheimer's in her community who every day insists on being placed in her wheelchair at the entrance to the monastery's nursing home wing so that she can greet everyone who comes. She is no longer certain what, is she, what she is welcoming people to, the younger woman explained. But hospitality is so deeply ingrained in her that it has become her whole life. An elderly nun with Alzheimer's shall lead them, right? As much as anything, these verses in Matthew chapter 10 are a foreshadowing of what Jesus will say later in Matthew chapter 25. Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or imprisoned and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. The least of these, or as the text for today puts it, these little ones, that call to welcome, to give a cup of cold water to these little ones, is the call to extend 
nothing but grace to people who have no worldly thing to offer you. No resources, no power, no political connections, no convenience. We know that there is no litmus test for righteousness. No way to prove yourself in grace. But if there was, I suspect it would have something to do with the way we either do or don't embrace the smallest and weakest ones placed into our midst. Embrace them with trustworthiness, with guidance, with respect, with love. Every week when I'm preparing a sermon, I carry the text around in my mind with me through the week. And so I did that this week, and I thought about this calling, this expectation for welcome, for caring for the littlest ones. As the youngest person in our civil rights tour group this past week was a four-year-old boy. As we moved through the week, I, of course, sought to interact with the various persons in our group to be supportive and attentive where I could, where I could. but I suspect my most significant interactions were when I followed him out of the Voting Rights Museum and picked up the paper towel that he had dropped in the parking lot, or when I lifted him up on the stool he couldn't climb up himself at the Sweet Auburn Market, or when I admired his souvenir yo-yo at the Rosa Parks Museum. It really wasn't much, and it's easy to assume that none of those little actions were of any benefit to me, except for the shaping of my own humanity, they were. Because the chance to practice grace and extend welcome when none of it gains us any advantage, is always shaping us, bit by bit, in the best way. We become our welcome. And maybe I've come full circle now, back to where I started my thoughts, with the way a parent or someone else in that spirit can make us feel at home from the very beginning, and what a gift that is to be received through an open door with an open heart, to begin there, but then to travel all the way to the realization that such warmth and love is never just the work of families. It is the work of communities. It is the work of the powerful alongside the weak. It is the blessing of unlimited welcome. A welcome that brings us closer and closer to Christ. So this then is my prayer for us. May a spirit of welcoming and a commitment to receiving others be what shapes us all of our lives. And may hospitality reside so deeply in our hearts that even if there comes a time when we cannot remember what we are welcoming people to, it has already become everything we are. May it be so. Amen.